0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're going to be discussing The Westing Game by Alan Raskin, which was the 1979 Newberry Medal and finishes off our very short season eight, two-book season of 1979 winners.
1: And I have an annotation for you from Kirkus Reviews from May 1st, 1978. The Westing Game, a super sharp mystery, more a puzzle than a novel, but endowed with a vivid and extensive cast. In the Christie tradition, Raskin isolates a diverse group of strangers, the mysteriously handpicked tenants of a new apartment building within the site of the old Weston mansion, and presents them with the information that one of them is the murderer. Actually, it turns out that there is no corpse, but no one is aware of that when they are all assembled for a reading of old Westing's fiendish will, which pairs them all off and allots each pair four one word clues to the murderer's identity as the winning pair is to inherit westing's fortune there is much secret conferring private investigating far-out scheming and snitching and scrambling of the teasing enigmatic clues <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a tongue twister in itself it is, it is. So this is this is one of those rare situations and I think I, I talked about it a little bit during the Gilly episode. This is one of my all time favorite books, not just Newberry books, like all time favorite books. I know that there is content that has not aged well.
0: Yeah. I was actually it was funny, I was thinking about that as I reread it in the context of of our last episode, The Great Gilly Hopkins, because I was complaining a lot about things like racism. And it felt to me like Gilly Hopkins had this like the macro version of, of the microaggressions that are happening throughout this book. And I think that they're presented in the same or presented with the same intent, you know, to show the faults of the people the way that you were arguing yesterday, arguing in the last episode that Gilly speaks in those horrendous, hateful ways to show that she is a flawed person. But it's just interesting to see the the contrast when when it's done in a different way because it's exactly the same. You know these these flaws in the characters and the way that they speak are completely unacceptable. They're just smaller. They're these little pokes instead of big punches.
1: Yeah. So I guess Gilly Hopkins is the aggression, and Weston Game is the microaggression. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, Gilly is very aggressive, but but yeah, yeah the the microaggressions are really uniformly throughout this book. And when you're a kid, you you once again, you just you don't notice them. But I've got to imagine that this book is hard to read for a lot of people because of those because the the cast of this book, that there are 16 protagonists, which is wild for a kids book. But they're very diverse, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's there's a kid with a disability, there's the the black adult judge who's, you know, kind of angry and well, you know, well deserved anger. There's the Asian family who lives in the in the building who has a restaurant. There's a Greek family, like it's a very, it's a very diverse cast of characters, but there are microaggressions at, aimed at all of them from various characters. never, never from the author, you know, but from the characters. and that's still got to be hurtful to read.
1: Well, and I still can't figure out, and I don't know if it's my blindness to just the because the mystery part, The mystery part is the part that has captured my imagination as a young kid and has continued to to, like just have a hold on me.
0: Oh, yeah. I I, mean, I I read this book enough as a kid that I love it, too. Before, I was aware of those microaggressions. Like, you fall in love with the book, and it's too late to fall out of love with the book.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know where that line is. I don't know if... Because I, I agree that I don't think Raskin or the narrator is participating in those things, but... I also – and I also feel like there's a mirror being held up to be like these are wrong with some of it. Yeah. And then some of it is just feels like, okay, it was the end of the 70s and it was okay to have a character exoticize, a, you know, a Chinese immigrant woman who doesn't speak English very well.
0: Although, you know, I mean it's not an excuse, but like it was done for a certain effect – as in gilly but it w- it was subtle and there were a lot of cases where the other characters or the the characters being maligned themselves
1: who were just like ugh with this you know yeah and that's that's the other thing is so so grace wexler she's one of the heirs And we find out how she's connected to the Westing family much later in the book. And I don't think we'll actually get into that part. But her husband, Jake Wexler, is a podiatrist and he is also a bookie. That's one thing that always has caught my attention, that one section near the beginning of the the book where it talks about the types of people that are in the building. Mm -hmm. And it says, who are these people, these specially selected tenants? They were mothers and fathers and children, a dressmaker, a secretary, an inventor, a doctor, a judge. And oh, yes, one was a bookie, one was a burglar, one was a bomber, and one was a mistake. Barney Northrup had rented one of the apartments to the wrong person. And that still hits me just as hard. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it is. It is. It's so intriguing and so exciting to know that those secrets are going to be revealed on top of a bigger mystery, too. Well, but if- Jake Jake Wexler, he's you know he's a bookie. We find that out, and but he is paired with Madame Hu, who is Sun Lin Hu, and he actually takes notice of her as a person. So you have these microaggressions and this exoticizing that's going on by some of the other characters, but then you have this character, this white upper class man character, who is actually you know, partnering with her and trying to learn how to communicate with her and not othering her. So I'm not, I'm not making excuses for the things that are wrong in this book by any means, but I I do see a little bit of a push and pull that I I think is good. It's moving in the right direction. It doesn't go go all the way in the right direction, but I think it, you know, it starts to move a little bit in the right direction.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are lots of instances where it's, it's, poked out a little bit, you know, enough to show that it's being done on purpose. You know, where Angela Wexler, the the daughter of Jake and Grace, who you were just discussing, is this like perfect, beautiful young woman who's about to get married, but that's all that anybody knows or cares about her. And there is a point at which she's under suspicion for bombing and somebody thinks, oh my God, that sweet young thing. And then that person stops themselves and says... Oh my God. I I think of her as a thing. Like that's Mm -hmm. all I think of her. Have I ever said anything to her besides you look pretty or, Oh, how are the wedding plans? You know? So it's, it's intentional, which is, I, I, I think that for me makes some of the difference in, in sort of feeling it's okay to love this book because it's, it's, proved to be so intentional on so many different occasions. Obviously, I can't know what it would be like to read this book and hear those microaggressions aimed at various ethnicities. So maybe it's not enough to excuse. I mean, not that maybe it's not enough to to warrant my love for this book, (laughs) but it it feels different. And I'm not entirely sure why.
1: You know, I, I agree with you to some extent and but at the same time we have I don't know. I you know, I so on one hand we have Chris, Theodoricus, we also have Rosalie, you know, Flora Bombach's deceased daughter who was developmentally challenged. And I feel like there is a movement to see them as people in the book. Yes. As well as we have Judge JJ Ford, Judge Josie Joe Ford, whose parents worked in the Westing household and she grew up around Sam Westing and they used to take they used to play chess together, but he used to make references to her like having a frizzy head and really only helped her so that he could kind of have a judge in his pocket. Well, <laughs> that know? was her theory though. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I think the way it's framed, like it's, this is a book about like, it's a puzzle about a mystery about a puzzle, really. And so I think that all the relationships are puzzles as well, even to the people involved in them. So she might be attributing that motivation to him and it may not be true. hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, but I think she felt it, right. I think she, she felt that. And I I think that is a real moment in the book where she feels like that's, she was being used Mm -hmm. for, you know, for that purpose, whether it's real or not. Right. So, but I think that, I think that all, you know, I think this is something that needs to be examined further. And I did a little bit of a, a search. I didn't find that much scholarship on this particular topic. I found a few things, but I didn't find a lot. And I think it's something that can really be examined over time and really picked apart. So let's talk about the plot of the book and we'll we'll interject with attention to these details as we need to.
0: Okay. So, well, as you discussed in your annotation, the basic premise is that these people are all rented apartments in one building. They're all given letters that name them as heirs to Sam Westing, and he has this $200 million fortune. He's a like a paper magnate. And then they're, they're put into pairs and given clues during the reading of the will to help them solve the mystery. And it's just one big puzzle, and the clues make no sense to them. As a reader, it's pretty obvious that they come from America,
1: the beautiful. But I remember reading this young enough that I didn't catch that. Oh, they made us the sing it time. every day at
0: school. So I was like, mm-hmm. obviously.
1: <laughs> no, like I, I did, I did catch like, oh, Amber wave, Like I was like, Amber waves, Amber waves, wherever I heard that. But I was so young when I read this, I must've been about eight. Mm-hmm. or 9 and I didn't catch it the first time right and so it was a nice surprise for me and now you know I read it and it feel very nostalgic for that little surprise I had yeah <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is is they the will is read after a small group of the tenants when once they move in there's the youngest the youngest person who lives in the building is named Turtle and she is dared by two of the teenagers, Theo and Doug, to go and spend, you know, however long she can in the Westinghouse that's up on the hill because there's a legend that it's like haunted and it looks like it's abandoned. And so she it's on it's Halloween night, and so she puts her witch nose on, she gets her flask of pop, she gets her all her provisions, and she goes into the, the Westinghouse. And she finds what looks to be a body.
0: I love her motivation for that because they agree to pay her $2 for every minute that she stays inside. And she like, she maths out how long it's going to take her to earn enough to pay for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Like, I love her. I love her (laughs) so much.
1: Yeah. Turtle is one of those feisty girl characters that I always have admired and, but didn't always find a kinship with necessarily. I didn't ever felt like she was me or yeah. I was her. Well, apparently but she I always was, really liked her.
0: Apparently she was modeled on on the author as a child.
1: Oh, well, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, so once once the will is read, once he's declared dead, once the will is read, they are they are divided up into teams and it's really interesting because they the reading of the will and the dividing of the teams there is a, a lawyer who's reading out the will and there's actually parts in it where like Grace Wexler stands up to, to like be offended. Uh, yeah, to be offended and to be like, "No." And then the the guy reading the will is like, "Sit down, Grace." And that's in the will. <laughs> I always thought that was super funny. And so, let's go through the cast of characters really quickly. We have Madam Sun Lin Hugh and Jack Jake Wexler. We talked a little bit about them before. Turtle Wexler and Flora Bomback. Flora Bomback is a dressmaker, and she's an elderly lady who we find out has lost her daughter. Christos or Chris Theodoricus, who is a young man in a wheelchair and with an unspecified illness that they talk about a bit, but never really get into. Dr. Deer, who is Angela's fiance and a plastic surgeon, Alexander McSoutherns, also known as Sandy McSoutherns. He's the doorman of the building. And then JJ Ford, who's a judge, uh, Grace Windsor Wexler. And these are all designations that they've chosen themselves. She wrote heiress, and James Shin, who is a restaurateur, birth—is it Bertha or birth? I think Bertha. Bertha Erica Crow, Good Salvation Soup Kitchen, and Otis Amber Deliverer, and Theo— Theodoricus, Theo Theodoricus, he wrote brother, and Doug Hu is the first in all state high school mile run. And the last pair is Seidel Pulaski, secretary to the president, and Angela Wexler, Nun. And we talked a little bit about Angela being described as this like beautiful young woman and only described in relation to her relationship to Dr. Deer and their wedding. And I think that's where a little bit of feminism comes in, her and Turtle, that I've always appreciated being seen for their for their intellect rather than what they appear to be.
0: I like, I like Angela's growth throughout this. Like they have to name their position when they put their names down on these lists for the, the will readings. And like you just said, Angela at the beginning of the beginning of the book puts down none, not N-U-N like religious none, but N-O-N-E like nothing. But by the end of the book, when she's given a choice what to put, she just puts person, Mm -hmm. which I think is very telling and nice.
1: Yeah, that is It's a good mark of growth. Yeah, so they all have these clues. They're on Westing paper towels. <laughs> Each team takes a very different approach to what they think the clues are to and how to decode the clues. So Flora and Turtle Turtles convinces the stock market. So she starts to look at stocks that have those those words in them or those codes as well as the Westing stock some pairs don't do anything with them and or give them away some the Seidel and Angela pairing is really interesting Seidel being a secretary she actually writes down the will in shorthand and listens for any clues to what the other clues are for other teams and so she has this like shorthand notebook that she's keeping hidden what are some of the other strategies
0: I mean a lot of them just sort of puzzle out the clues and get it totally wrong
1: mr who and grace think that 4c they have 4 for and then another clue is c they think that maybe 4c is the the number of the apartment yeah and
0: they they tear it's like another pair tears apart their clues to rearrange it into the word amber which you know is the last name of otis so they they choose lots of different methods to kind of approach it and they're all wrong in their own way
1: Mm mm-hmm so as time goes on, like, they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to win the money. They're trying to hide all of their clues from from each other. And this is, like, kind of splitting and dividing families. And it's also just causing a lot of, like, ruckus in the apartment building. And then there's a bomb. <laughs> yes.
0: There's a bomb, and then there's another bomb, and then there's another bomb. Things just go... A little bonkers from there
1: (laughs) yeah things go very bonkers and like Seidel has this idea that they need to be that she and Angela need to dress up like twins because that'll spur some people to talk
0: yeah Theo is trying to figure out who knows how to play chess because he's playing chess with someone uh, where he moves the pieces that are sitting near where the will is being read and then someone else is moving the pieces but nobody nobody is visible doing it you know so he's going around asking questions about chess Which actually turns out to be a very good track if people were telling the truth, but they're not, of course.
1: Yes. Yes. And there's a a dinner party or like a little party is thrown to try to get more information from the other people.
0: Which is unsuccessful. I didn't know that this came from anything other than Ellen, Ellen Raskin's imagination, but I guess she was inspired from a couple of different sources, which inform the story. If you, if you read about it, it's kind of cool. There's a New York Times article about that where it talks about how she is inspired both by, there was this a kind of eccentric magnate who lived kind of in the location where the story is set and where Ellen Raskin is from. And he f- started the, like the Kohler bathtub business. And it got so big when it started that he did the same thing where he built like he built a town called Kohler right next to right next to where he had this big mansion by a lake. So it was very similar like style and he was very like union busting eccentric rich dude. So that was part of the inspiration. And then also uh Howard Hughes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Because he had this whole, you know, the kerfluffle about his his will and, and multiple potential beneficiaries and it turned out that someone had forged that but, like, the, the reversals and the mystery and the puzzliness of it. So she kind of mixed those two things together and then and then took off running. But, like, I, I think that it's interesting to consider those inspirations while you're reading this because it, it just gives things a little bit of a different spin.
1: Yeah, it does. I don't think we think about that often sometimes in modern, like, modern current day mm-hmm. is that this idea of there being, like, richer than God – men who create kind of environments around themselves. Like that's been going on for a long time and that we still have that, right? Like oh, with yeah, Bezos we do. <laughs> and Musk and stuff like that. So, you know, it's one of those things like it's, you know, it it's, there's a long history in America in particular of entrepreneurs doing this kind of thing. And I think it's really, Really fascinating that she took took that type of figure and actually made him into someone who was flawed, but uh, maybe not in the Howard Hughes way, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but also made him into a game master where the winners actually benefit and they actually benefit from his fortune. Although it is a little shitty and kind of super rich guy ish to like make people solve a mystery to do it. I
0: know it's like <laughs> entertain me, you know, Here, ooh, I'm going to watch you all run around and scurry to, to get these scraps
1: that I'm throwing at you. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, part of it is like dance, dance for me, you know, like I, I'm paying, I'm paying you and now you'll entertain me. Um, kind of thing, but it is a really good story. Like it just, it just, you know, it's just really good it, story. It's
0: such a good story. And I love that reading it, you're trying to solve the puzzle too, because there's different clues given to the characters to solve this, this puzzle. But you as the reader are not given all the clues that they have and you are given clues that they don't have. Like actually the solution is given in the very first line of the book. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. The sun sets in the west, just about everyone knows that, but sunset towers faced east strange like and that you'll never know till the end how that is the solution but it is the solution so it's it's fun because there and there are a lot of other tiny things throughout the book that are offhand comments by the characters or just little parts of the description that help you as the reader solve parts of the puzzle that the characters can't and of course the characters are given clues every time the will is read and you're not privy to all of those
1: Mm -hmm. not all the time not all the time but and I also yeah. I feel like the stakes just keep getting higher, but like no one actually is killed. And I feel like that's unusual for something with, that becomes such high stakes. It's very interesting to me the way that it is formatted and the way that it's laid out. Um, like you said, with with us knowing things that the, the characters don't know and the characters knowing things that we don't know. And then ultimately, they have to come they have to come up with answers and right? they have to,
0: and they have to come together. There's no way to solve it unless they work together.
1: But they come up with answers and they all give their official answer at another, you know, meeting with the lawyer and then the lawyer says you're all wrong. So they then that's when they come together.
0: Yes. But even that is a clue Mm -hmm. that as it turns out, you know, the, the fact that that even can be read out loud that they're all wrong because the only way to know that is a clue to
1: what the real answer is. And so when they put everything together, they actually realize that there are some words missing. Yeah. So the the clues
0: all are parts of America the Beautiful and the, the missing words from that are a name. But what's interesting is that the name is still not
1: should it should we i don't yeah the name is still not the full answer well, so i mean i think we're i think we're gonna hold off from telling the full answer maybe yeah it names one of the beneficiaries in one of the pairs and then they have to continue to 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 try to solve this riddle ultimately it the, is solved
0: yes <laughs> um <laughs> but the name is not what you expected it to be
1: and we start to see that there are actually ties to the Westing to Westing Mr. Westing and the Westing family with all of the all of the players all of the people who are trying to figure this out and so that's another one of the the big parts of the book the reveal of how they're all connected and how they're connected to Westing so we have that part we have the actual mystery with the money and trying to solve his riddle we have who who's the bomber the bookie the thief those and, are all and the mistake yeah the mistake
0: and and some of those don't even matter
1: yeah some don't even matter but you do get answers for all of those and I think that's that's great I mean that and that's exactly what we what you need in this type of book but you also get a little postscript of the characters like what they go on to do and who they are particularly the the kids what they grow up who they grow up to be and that's you know it's very satisfying it's extremely satisfying I want to make a note that the Cooperative Children's Book Center from the School of Education of the University of Wisconsin-Madison has a really great set of web pages on the Westing game and on Ellen Raskin herself. They have a copy of the manuscript, they have drafts, they have working notes, the book design, they have citations. They have citations for articles by Ellen Raskin, and they have a little bit of information about some of her other works um, because she was originally – she was an illustrator.
0: I know. I'm in love with her anyway. I mean, I love this book, and I actually love her other Newbery book, Figs and Phantoms. But uh, she has my heart forever because she created the original uh, dust jacket for A Wrinkle in Time,
1: and that's probably my favorite book cover ever. I – It is a great book cover. It's very iconic. I really love the original Westing Game book cover. Oh
0: yes, me too.
1: I love it, (laughs) and like there are no other versions of it that have come close to me really loving as much by any means.
0: I know. I was looking at my cover because. a a lot of my books are first printings. This one happens to be a mass market paperback because my copies of the Westing game as a child, I just read until they disintegrated. (laughs) So the one I have now is just a cheap, you know, mass market paperback. And it's such a disappointing cover compared. I mean, it's not, it's not bad art. It's just that I loved that original cover and, uh, I'm a little bummed that I don't have it. I might have to work
1: on that one next. I have one that's. It's got the original cover on the back, but it also is missing all the colors. It's the whole illustrations in red, like a shiny red, and the the front looks like a chessboard. And it has on the black squares, it has like inverted yes. portraits. Mm-hmm and it has some of the clues and it has a chess piece and, and blood, blood and yeah <laughs> and I mean it's fine but that original cover the house you know the huge house made of money with the fireworks I just it's just it's absolutely one of my favorites yeah so I I love that she was an illustrator she also in the note there's a note in my the book that I have from Anne Durrell who was an editor and they became friends and she talks a little bit about illustrations about Ellen kind of flaming out of some other careers and then about how she started to write and i've i've read i read the tattooed potato recently i know i've read figs and phantom and the disappearance of leon noel but it's been a while and i i'm i'm going to go back to them really soon because i really really want to read more raskin but to me this is kind of a gold standard of of like pulling off this type of narrative and this type of mystery. I'm really interested in seeing more of Ellen Raskin's illustrations. I feel like I haven't seen enough of them. And I did, in the introduction that I was just talking about, it's mentioned that she illustrated a version of The Goblin Market by Rossetti, And Ooh. so I'm trying to get my hands on that to see. I really want to see that. Yes, please
0: find that. I want to see it. Let's put it in the show notes if we can find it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that she was a professional artist. And before she started writing, she... Or probably during, she illustrated more than a thousand dust jackets for books. And I'm like, this is my kind of artist.
1: Marcy, do you have any read-alikes for the Weston game? I have too many. I have too many. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so
0: I do. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be brief, but my first one is not a read-alike, but it's the most obvious parallel that must be mentioned, which is the clue movie because it has such a similar vibe of like the scurrying around and the hijinks and the crazy things happening. So for me, the thing that springs to mind is definitely the, Cl- the Clue movie. Although there's not really a Tim Curry equivalent, which is a shame. I mean, I guess Mr. Weston and associates, but, <laughs> but not really. Different attitude. When You Reach Me, for me, was a mild, mild parallel because of the mystery and the and the flips and the things that happen at the end, but it is lacking the, the frenetic pace of this book. But I did also like The Wrinkle and Time Association. The Mysterious Benedict Society is a series I would recommend to anybody who is reading at this age level and really likes mysteries with lots of twists and turns
1: and details. I read the first one and I really enjoyed it. It's been a while, though.
0: Yeah, they're really good. They're longer. They're much longer. So if you, if you read this book or you recommend this book to a kid and they like it and they like how detailed and twisty it is, but they want much, much more, those books are like, I want to say 400 page plus and there's quite a few of them. So that's good if you like to read a lot. And then my last one is, and I found an article about this, so I didn't make this association myself until I found this article, but then it seemed very obvious and I was mad at myself for not thinking of it. But in an article in litreactor.com uh, from 2018, which we'll also link to in our show notes, it describes how the Westing game inspired Ready Player One. Oh. And then it seemed obvious once <laughs> once I <laughs> read that because I was like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, if you haven't read Ready Player One, it's a book for adults or young adults. Please do not prejudge based on the movie. Please, please. (laughs) Um, And it's a book that my husband read for his book club and he told me how much I would like it and I was very resistant. And he bothered me and bothered me and bothered me until finally, ugh, I read it. And now it's probably on my top ten books list of books that I reread frequently. I'm not saying it's my favorite book of all time or that it's like great literature in the in the canon of great literature, but I cannot stop reading it. It's so good. And it does, it has all these twists and turns and details only in Ready Player One. It's all 80s pop culture and video game reference details that are the clues. So if you enjoy that at all, it's really good. And then Ernest Klein, who wrote who wrote Ready Player One, also did a couple more books, not all of which are my favorite. Like Armada is not my favorite. That one's kind of Ready Player One ish and loosely based on war games, the eighties the movie.
1: I really enjoy, I listened to it. It was Will Wheaton. Um, well, that would make anything. Doing an audiobook and it was <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Like I know a lot of people didn't like Armada, but I think because I listened to it and I just you know, I just got it, it really I really enjoyed it that way. So that well, might
0: be. I think Will Wheaton is very entertaining. So probably that would improve the experience. I didn't like it, but I also didn't love War Games. But I would say that oh Ready, god,
1: War Games is classic.
0: I know, I know. I watched it too late. It's like Tron. Like if you watch it past a certain point, you're just <laughs> it, it, you miss an essential element, but ready player two came out much more recently and starts up literally exactly where ready player one stops. And it's not quite as good, but if you just want more of those characters, when you stop ready player one, you can jump right into ready player two. So those are Very my cool. gazillion of read
1: Very cool. I have, I have several as well. And they all kind of speak to different aspects, although they are mysteries of a sort. So the first one that I would recommend is The Name of This Book is Secret by Pseudonymous Bosch love those books it's part of a series the secret series it's the first book in the secret series and it is uh, followed by four more and there are actual puzzles in it that are very fun it also has that I that kind of heightened reality feeling because you have two kids as the main protagonist and they're figuring out all this stuff out and they're kind of pitted against adults so that's a really you know a really cool. I really love the puzzles, and particularly in this first one. I don't think that I've read past this first one, but I mean, there's more to read if you like that first one. The second one that I want to recommend is Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's Library by Chris Grabenstein, and that has gone on to be a series as well. And that I recommend because of the game aspect, where they—it's a group of kids that they—they have to be invited to lock in to be locked in to the library and solve puzzles to get out and to win the prize. And so there's lots of little twists and turns and that's probably good for definitely good for a middle grade reader It has a diverse cast and it's just really charming in its own right. It's very hard because I have a deep love for the Westing game. I don't think any of these completely touch the greatness of it, no. um, but they are a lot of fun. It's really weird because
0: if anybody asks, I typically say that I don't enjoy mysteries. I really like that's not
1: my preferred genre at all. Uh Oh. I gobble them up. I'm oh. like a, such a mystery hound. Like,
0: well, it's funny though, because I love all these books. And I like the first books I ever remember reading. I was in kindergarten. I devoured all the Nancy Drew books. So it's, it's in there. Like it's part of me. <laughs>
1: it's just, oh, yeah. I mean, Nancy Drew, Encyclopedia Brown, Nate the Great, like all of those were my early reads. And then I just expanded from there. And now, I mean, I love nothing more than like a really – Taut mystery. I mean, if there's murders, that's fine. I don't prefer lots of murders, but give me like ton of French or you know, yeah, just give me ton of French any any day of the week.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Maybe it's adult mysteries that are not my favorite.
1: I mean, I don't blame you. I you know, I think that there's a lot of them that aren't very good slash are kind of like unnecessarily gory. So, I mean, but like kid mysteries, usually no one dies or if well, someone dies. It's like a very kind of sanitized kind of like bloodless type of thing where they're just gone. And then that stuff has to be figured out. Oh my God. I almost forgot one of the most important ones. Last, I would recommend Blue Bellyette, uh, Chasing Vermeer Oh, <laughs> Again, kids solving mysteries and there's mysteries to be solved by the reader. And they're just I, – I can't say enough good things about this book. It's not – it doesn't rank as high in my heart as The Westing Game, but it's still very much on my list of favorites. For all our all our laughing about bubblegum last episode, we do not have a snack for this uh, this episode.
0: Although we can make suggestions. Chinese food would be excellent.
1: Yeah, some orange pop. Or tea. Tea would be good. You know, let's include an activity. You can put some perfume in a, on a wart and then put on a witch nose. <laughs> yeah. You can make a multi layered candle. Don't make bombs. You could try to play some bets, although that doesn't go well for Jake Wexler and it probably won't go well for you. And please don't do home podiatry surgery. No, no. Although amateur
0: interior design, you could probably work on that.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. That beige velvet, that killed me. (laughs) That's such a, like, 70s, like, the character Grace is, as soon as she moves in, she wants to redo that, like, you know, get rid of all her old furniture and have new furniture. And she mentions several times that she wants beige velvet and then she gets the beige velvet and she's sitting on the beige velvet it's very 70s yeah
0: and it's so elegant right
1: i don't know if that's elegant i think it, she i mean she in her mind yeah. yeah she thinks it's elegant but i don't know so poor turtle. again you know please read this book we'd love to hear what you have to say about the microaggression conversation we were having uh, any read that you would recommend and thanks for joining us we're going to be starting season nine. Season nine is going to be the 1922 season, and that is the first year of the Newberries. So that is now in the hundredth year, we are doing the first year. And there are a lot of books.
0: And they're they're longer and some of them are quite dry. So brace yourselves. This is a terrible season
1: not to be drinking. Like do you like if you listen to our podcast regularly and you watched the loner, I mean you listen to the loner, it's gonna, gonna be gonna be like that. Like we're gonna do some history of the people who wrote them and then we may take the piss out of them because that's the only way to get through them.
0: I'm a little worried it's going to be like Men of Athens where it was just really a slog, but we'll see.
1: We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll gear up. I mean, we signed up to do this of our our total own accord. We've been doing this now for four years. We're about to hit the hundredth episode and we can make it fun. Uh, Maybe not the reading of it, but the episodes, (laughs) we can make it fun.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast.
1: Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals and please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided
0: by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid back and local Throckmorton ukulele band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is NewberryTart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.